Let's do a quick review of kind of the latter part of last week. We have a lot of ground to cover. Again, this has been recorded. You can go back and look if you want. Uh, so you don't, if you want to take notes, obviously feel free, but you don't have to feel like you have to get it all down if you want to go back and look at it later. But I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground, so just kind of hold on and uh, work with me through a lot of material. Well, let's begin with a review of the latter part of last week. And that is that what, we, what I suggested last week to you is that when you think about a sort of trajectory idea, I gave you kind of a, a simple sort of notion of trajectory that began with Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23.1 that talks about, I think we got a slide there, Deuteronomy 23.1 that talks about no eunuch is, is, is accepted in the assembly of the people of God. And that seems like a very straight, obvious command. You know, there it is. There's the rule right there. It's simple. No, no eunuchs. But then what you get after that is a, is a text from the prophet Isaiah who says, the latter, latter part of Isaiah, who says, in the coming day, the eunuch will be welcomed into the people of God. And so that kind of changes the notion of, wait a second, it says this here, but this seems to be changing where this is headed. And so the sort of flat trajectory notion kind of goes away, and then we'll, we'll look for more data. And then you get Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament, where you see the Ethiopian eunuch being taught the gospel reading from the book of Isaiah, and he sees water and says, well, here's water. What hindered me from being baptized? What hinders me from becoming a part of the people of God, says the eunuch. And he's told, nothing hinders you. And so he goes down and he's baptized and he becomes a part of the people of God. And so what happens is you have a shifting trajectory. It goes in a different direction, right? It develops. And if you take any one of those verses in abstraction from the others, you don't get a full picture of what's going on in the story of Scripture. And so this is a very simple illustration of what we mean when we talk about narrative theology. Narrative theology doesn't have to be complicated. It's not a complicated idea. It's a simple idea. And it's kind of represented by this graphic here. It's you want to follow the story, see where the story is going. And if you stop at any one place, you might not get the whole idea. You need to follow out the whole of the story to see where the story is headed. So then last week, we asked the question as well in this regard, what does it mean to ask where does the story go with regard to men and women, relations between men and women? Well, we began in Genesis 1 and 2, and in the creation story, what you see in Genesis 2 is men and women created in mutuality. The woman is not created out of the foot, and she's not created out of the head. She's created out of the side. And she's created in mutuality, one with the other. But then what happens after the so-called fall, go ahead and give me Genesis 2 there, please. Then what happens, oh, let's see. Well, maybe we not, might not have the right uh, thing. We'll, see, we'll, let, we'll let Phil, I'm sure Phil will find something magical up there in a minute. <laughs> um, then what happens there is that um, in Genesis 2, you have mutuality. Then you have the so-called fall and, and the sin. And then what happens is that hierarchy, man over woman, is a consequence of the fall. Patriarchy is not itself grounded in the good creation. Patriarchy comes as a consequence of the fall. Now, the woman is told, your desire will be for your husband and he'll be over you, right? It's a result of the fall. And so the phrase uh, that Josh has used a few times is that we're seeking to be a Genesis 2 church in the midst of a Genesis 3 world. Or we might say, we'll see again and be reminded in a moment, we're trying to be a Galatians 3 church in a Genesis 3 world. We're seeking to be a community 
that bears witness to the rightful, beautiful order of God's good creation, not to perpetuate the ways of the fallen world. Does that make sense? So then, in the prophets, what we see is, again, an anticipation. Right? So the prophet Joel, for example, a very key text in Joel chapter 2, will say, the coming day, God's Spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters, that all the people of God will receive the gifting of God's Spirit. All will be prophetesses and prophets. And then uh, you move into the story of the gospel, and you see Jesus going out, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the presence of the kingdom of God, and Jesus has men and women deeply involved in his ministry deeply involved in his ministry. You have that story of Mary and Martha, for example, where Mary and Martha are there welcoming people to their home, and Mary is going into the men part of the house, sitting with the men at the feet of Jesus, and some would suggest that sitting at the feet of Jesus is a sort of short, shorthand for saying, this is what one does when one sits at the foot of a master to learn to be a rabbi. She's there with the men in the men's part of the house, learning from the master. And Martha is put out by this. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's chosen a good thing. He honors the choice that she has made to, to kind of cross the taboo to be in the midst of the men sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, then um, we see in the ministry of Jesus himself that what happens at the crucifixion and the, the night of Christ's passion is that all of the men the 12, the 12 men, we'll come back to that in a moment, the 12 men of Jesus' apostles all flee Jesus, but it's the women that are going to stay with him. It's the women who are there with him at his crucifixion. It's the women who were the first women, who were the first people to become witnesses of his resurrection. It's a, it's a woman that is called the apostle to the apostles because she is the one who is sent by the angel to go proclaim to the 12 that Christ has been raised from the dead. Then, when you go on through into the book of Acts, what you see in Acts 2 is actually a hearkening back to Joel 2 that I mentioned a moment ago. What happens on the day of Pentecost is that the Spirit is poured out upon people from all lands, all tribes, men and women. The gifting of God in the Spirit is not a respecter of sex. It's not a respecter of gender. It's poured out upon all. And so what would you expect then? Well, you'd expect things like Philip's daughters. That was for Randall. <laughs> Philip's daughters to be prophetesses, which is precisely what the book of Acts, Acts says, right? You would expect in the New Testament church to find people like apostles, which is what Romans 16 says about Junia. You would expect to hear about women who were deacons, which is also what Romans 16 says about Phoebe. But what you see in the unfolding of the narrative is this continued development of this sort of trajectory. So when you get to the book of Galatians in chapter 3, you hear Paul say in verse 27, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has been baptized into Christ, they are now all one in Christ. And there's now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, no male and female. Now, let's talk about that just a moment, a little deeper than we did last week. What Paul is seeking to describe, one way to think about what Paul is seeking to describe, is that he is pointing to the various exclusivities 
by which status was attained or granted to some in exclusion to status given to others. So remember, there was a, there was a, a prayer apparently said in synagogue, first and second century, where some would pray, and I don't know how widespread this was, uh, but some would pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And here Paul is playing off of that very sort of set of constructs and saying, if you've been baptized into Christ, we are all one in Christ. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male and female. Now, I want to insert an important parenthetical here. Over the last number of years, as we've talked about this issue of women in leadership, and, and I'll, I'll say that my parenthetical is speaking for Lee and it's not speaking for the elders, okay? Um, because we, we haven't discussed this particular point that I'm about to make. But what I've heard from a, a good number of people, both in, uh, you know, throughout the church as we've talked about this issue, is that some will say, well, I don't think the question of women in the eldership is a salvation issue, that role of women is a salvation issue. Now, when they say that, I suspect I know what they mean. I think what they mean is God's grace is great, God's grace is big and large, and if you get this point wrong, you're not going to go to hell. I think that's what they mean when they say, I don't think this is a salvation issue. And the intent of that, I would say, I really appreciate and respect the intent behind saying that. But I want to suggest such a, just a moment that we will understand the New Testament better and the Apostle Paul better if actually we will say that the relations between men and women is a salvation issue. Now stick with me just a second. Now let me explain what I mean. See, what Paul, as, as one famous New Testament scholar puts it, Paul is a new creation theologian. So go back just a second to the, to the synoptic gospel just a moment. You know, Jesus, when Jesus goes out preaching the gospel, Jesus doesn't say, behold, if you do X, Y, or Z, you can go to heaven when you die. If you believe in me as the Lord and Savior, you'll go to heaven when you die. If you think X, Y, and Z and don't do A, B, and C, you can go to heaven when you die. Jesus doesn't talk that way. Jesus says, repent, change, for the kingdom of God is here. What he invites us to is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, synonymous language. Similarly, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets, what they anticipate is not a day in which we can go to, go to heaven when we die. What they anticipate, for example, Isaiah, is what he calls new heavens and new earth. It's the promise that God would redeem God's good creation, where God's will, as we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, where God's will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Biblically, salvation is God's good creation that is broken and fallen, being saved and redeemed, and that's captured in the language of new heavens and new earth. So even when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, this is going to surprise some of you, but go read it. Right, the street of gold is not in heaven. 
The pearly gates are not in heaven. The street of gold and the pearly gates are in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven into our midst, into the new heavens and the new earth where it says God will be in our midst and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. So what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians is by the time you get to chapter 5 and chapter 6, he will say, uh, in the midst of the argument about identity and ethnicity, so the way a lot, of, a lot of us Protestants have read the book of Galatians is to say what Galatians is about is about works righteousness. They think if you have to do A, B, and C, if you're going to be saved. The problem is that even, even the Old Testament is in a book of works righteousness. The Old Testament says it is by God's grace. Read Deuteronomy. What Paul is saying is not, well, those Jews, they're works righteousness people, but now we Jewish Christians know we're saved by grace through faith. He is saying we're saved by grace through faith, but he's got a different point he's making. It's not ethnic superiority, he's saying. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or free. It's not ethnic superiority. It is being in Christ. This is that which gives us unity. This is that which saves us. This is the marker, he says, that points to new creation. So in Galatians 5... He says, it's not circumcision nor uncircumcision. He says, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And in chapter 6, he says, it is not circumcision or uncircumcision. It is a new creation. Isn't it beautiful? So when we say, well, this is not a salvation issue, I want to suggest, oh, it is. It is. If you understand salvation as the great magnificent work of God to work in human history and to begin to bring about new heavens and new earth even now in our midst which we're promised will come in fullness someday and that salvation is participating in that beautiful work of God then Paul is describing this beautiful salvific work in Galatians 3.27 all who are baptized into Christ are one in Christ and there is now no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Now, we'll back up really quickly to um, Jesus' chosen 12 apostles. We mentioned this last week, right? So a lot of people will say, well, look, Jesus doesn't choose any women as the 12. So doesn't that, shouldn't that give us some sort of pause, that there's some sort of special privilege or prerogative to men? Well, it is true that Jesus chose 12 men, but think also about this. Jesus chose 12 Jewish free men as pointing to the reconstitution of Israel. But then by the time you get to the establishment and Paul proclaiming the fullness or the, 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 the inauguration, I should say, of the kingdom of God, he will say now in baptism, there's not just... Jewish, male, free, but neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free. Ephesians 3, another kind of significant text, is that when Ephesians is talking about uh, the pouring out of God's Spirit, uh, the, the Spirit, the work of God's Spirit often points to not only God bringing us to salvation 
and God bringing us to communion with God in Christ through the Spirit and making possible new ways of living. But as well, the Spirit oftentimes points to the way in which God has poured out God's gifts upon the church. So in Ephesians chapter 4, what we see is a sort of pouring out of various gifts. And again, it's important to note, the gifts are not gendered. It's not gifts to men. It's gifts to the church. Or similarly, in Romans chapter 12, a lot of other sorts of gifts given to the church. And again, there are no male pronouns in Romans 12. It is non-gendered gifts. It is gifts given to the church. Gifts given to the church. Uh, Romans 16, mentioned a moment ago, just again, quickly. Junia is listed there as an apostle. Phoebe is listed as a deacon. At least eight women, maybe ten women alluded to or named here as leaders in the church. So what I'm, what I'm asking you to do is, is to consider the weight of this witness. And there's lots more that could fill this all out. And again, there's stuff in the, in the reading, if you want to go dig into this more, that can just give you more and more weight to what I have only sketched out. And what I want to ask you to consider is, is to say, this is, the, this is the trajectory of the New Testament. This is a trajectory of Scripture consummating itself in the New Testament. And it is this with which we must grapple. And yet too often what's happened in our own particular tradition is because we've had another way of reading the Bible, we've focused upon a couple of verses that we've treated as conversation stoppers rather than saying, wait a minute, there's a whole big story here that's telling us something that we seem to have squashed or squelched. But nonetheless, there are these texts, right? And so this morning... And, and next week, we'll begin thinking a little bit about these particular texts. So, 1 Corinthians 14 is the first one that we want to talk about and think about. Let's just read the text first. I don't know if you can read that, so you may want to pull up your own little your Bible or pull out your Bible. Let me read it for you. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, we can... Um, we hear what the, the words say. Seems pretty straightforward. And so let's ask about this. Well, in, the, in our tradition, in Churches of Christ, uh, as, as we talked about week one, we have had what we call a regulative principle in reading the Bible. And that is the idea of the regulative principle, we want to do it now as they did it in the first century church. And the Bible gives sorts of exclusive permission to what is possible or acceptable to do in church. And if it excludes something, that's excluded as well, right? And so what you have here, under the regulative reading of the New Testament and then the so-called command, example, and necessary inference reading is that this is taken as a sort of universal rule. Women don't speak. Women are to be silent. It's a shame for women to speak in the church. At the same time, uh, one of the things I would ask you to consider doing as, as you're grappling with 
thinking through these challenging questions is to, to get adept at asking good follow-up questions. All right, rather, rather than assuming, and, and, you, and you might need to do that as much of yourself as you do with other people, is to asking good follow-up questions, right? To have a conversation with yourself, to have a conversation with other people, and to say, but how about, right? So if you think about 1 Corinthians 14 and the so-called regulative principle uh, that we've had in Churches of Christ, we could ask ourselves this question, um, why is it that we've chosen that particular paragraph from 1 Corinthians 14 where we're telling the women to be quiet, but we've explained away based upon time and place most of the rest of the chapter? Because most of the rest of the chapter is telling people how they should speak in tongues in church. It's how they should interpret tongues in church. Isn't that interesting? So we've taken this one particular paragraph and we've said, women, be quiet. And if someone says, well, what about the tongue speaking? Oh, we don't do that. What about interpreting tongues? Well, we don't do that. That was for that time and that place. Well, what about this? Well, this is for us. This paragraph's for us. Well, how do you know? Well, there appears to be a sort of arbitrariness about that, right? So that's at least one follow-up question that I would encourage you to ask. Well, but, well, but what about the context of the immediate chapter? Well, another couple of things I want to suggest about this is let's, let's do a quick aside and I'll give you a few reminders about Paul's letters. You know this, but just a quick reminder. Paul's letters are what we call occasional letters. That is, by occasional, we mean that some occasion has arisen and he is writing to a particular church at a particular time with a particular set of problems or a particular set of questions. Scripture, New Testament, most of the New Testament, we might say all the New Testament, was not written to us. And some, some would say, well, it's written for us. And I would say, yeah, it is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. First Corinthians was written to the Corinthians with a particular set of problems, a particular set of challenges, a particular set of something that's going on. A second sort of thing to think about Paul's letters is that they're hard to understand. And one of the reasons that they're hard to understand and to appropriately apply is take the metaphor of a telephone call, right? You, you could hear your spouse on the telephone and you could hear them say something like, well, he ought to ask his wife at home. And that probably pique your interest. But what does that mean? Well, you don't know what it means unless after your spouse hangs up, you say, you said, I'd ask his wife at home. I'd ask his husband at home. I don't remember what I said a minute ago. Um, what does that mean? And then only if you get this sort of being filled in, can you begin to make sense of it? And a lot of times we can hear things secondhand like that where you're only hearing one side of the conversation and we can completely misconstrue it. You know, I've had these conversations where I've listened to Laura on the phone. She'll be having a conversation, and I'll be sitting over there thinking, oh, my goodness, what in the world is going on? And she'll hang up, and I'll say, what is happening? And she'll say it, and I'll say, oh, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, but you don't know what you don't know. And we need to remember, we don't know what we don't know about what was happening on the other side of Paul's metaphorical telephone calls. So this leads then 
to something that I think is threatening to some folks. And that is when you read a lot of New Testament scholarship, a lot of biblical scholarship, and when they're carefully working through texts and they're carefully working through Greek and they're carefully working through New Testament backgrounds and history and culture, the good ones, I would suggest, a lot of times are going to say, maybe, blah, 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 and perhaps, blah, 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 blah. Maybe, perhaps, and perhaps it was this way, and perhaps it was this way. And for a lot of folks, that seems, again, like a sort of act of obfuscation. Just tell us what it is. And I would suggest that given this, they are actually being humble before the text. They are actually being rightfully submissive to the Scriptures by not overstating what they think they know because that could do great damage to the church. That what we are invited into as a part of the people of God is a tradition of interpretation where we're trying to do the best we can and make sense of what a text might mean. Maybe and perhaps may be an act of faithfulness and fidelity in reading Scripture. All right, so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Um, what I'm asking and what, what the elders uh, I think are asking us to do is to take a narrative reading of Scripture seriously. To not fall prey to the kind of conversation stopper of a verse. So what oftentimes happens, I think in this next slide here, is that we have this whole set of data, this whole set of picture of Scripture. And somebody trots out one verse, like 1 Corinthians 14, and they just say, "Eh," and just, just stop. And what happens is that sometimes we let people get away with that. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, really? You're going to let one verse get trotted out and set all this other stuff aside? And I would suggest it's okay for you to push back against that a little bit. Anytime anybody proof texts the Bible, it's a healthy thing in loving and respectful and kind ways to say, well, wait a second. There's still a lot of stuff here that you're not taking account of and you're not giving an account for by trying to trot this out as a conversation stopper. That sometimes I hear people say, well, it clearly says, and again, I want to I suggest very humbly, if I can, and kindly, if I can, you trying to take the presumed Bible-quoting high ground may actually not be showing respect for Scripture because there's a lot more to be said. The burden of proof, in other, in other words in light of this whole narrative of Scripture, the burden of proof with regard to something like 1 Corinthians 14, that again we're going to come back to, the whole burden of proof is on the traditional silencing, limiting, and quieting. We've, we've turned it around the other way. We're so used to the tradition of women being shushed, kept in their place, the culture of patriarchy. We've been so used to that that we've presumed the burden of proof is upon those who would begin to say, there is liberty here. But in actuality, I would suggest it's the opposite. 
the great weight of Scripture is on the side of freedom, mutuality. The burden of proof becomes upon those who trot out a verse and say, huh? So, uh, one more quick parenthetical, and then I'm going to promise I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We've talked about a couple of different reading interpretive strategies. The first one we talked about, especially at length the first week, was the Stone-Campbell regulative principle. Uh, you, you can only do what's specifically given in Scripture. It says this. It doesn't say this. It says sing. It doesn't say play. It says men elders. It doesn't say women elders. So just do this, right? There are other ways that some people read Paul in something like 1 Corinthians 14. And one of them is um, simply to say, well, Paul is wrong. And that's one way to do it. And there are people who do that. Um, Paul's wrong. Now, that's not the strategy or the approach that anybody in the eldership is taking, and it's not the approach I'm taking. Um, it's much more interesting than that, actually. A third approach is uh, what we would say that Paul is accommodating. That he is, um, for the sake of a greater agenda, is accommodating a given cultural context so that he can get on with preaching the gospel. Now, again, now I'm just speaking for Lee. This is where I started out when I started studying all this. I, that's what I thought I would, where I would come out on. Because there, there are places where Paul does seem to do that. For example, Paul is going to tell slave masters how to treat their slaves. Now, if you give someone a rule for how to treat their slaves, you either think slavery is good or you are accommodating or you're wrong. All right, so, so which one of those is it? Is it you think that slavery is good? It seems, it seems unfathomable to me that Paul would think that slavery is good given the gospel. I'm not comfortable with and not advocating the Paul is wrong approach. Um, so what do you do? Well, I, I think what he's probably doing is he's accommodating while subverting. And we, that goes into a long set of conversations. But because he, he actually gives treatment of both slaves and slave owners a sort of moral standing and a set of expectations that if they actually do what Paul is saying to do, it will subvert the practice of slavery. But for the moment, he's not saying we've got to stop this slavery stuff. He's accommodating it in a certain regard because he has a greater agenda at play. And I actually thought that's where I was going to come out about some of the stuff about women in the New Testament. I thought I was going to say he seems to be accommodating, but we've moved on in the tradition further, just like we did 150 years ago in this country on slavery, and now we've moved on in this country, and now we can say, well, he was accommodating with regard to men and women, and so just like we've moved on with regard to slavery, and we should have, it's time for us to move on. That's what I thought I was going to say. But that's not what I think anymore. It's this fourth thing that I've been suggesting, and that is try to understand what's going on with Paul in the larger narrative. So back to 1 Corinthians 14. When they met 1 Corinthians 14, let's remember the big narrative and also think about the context. Now, it's important in 1 Corinthians 14 to be mindful of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that it appears um, one of the first points of difficulty 
was saying that Paul is telling all women everywhere to be quiet in church. One of the reasons that's a huge problem to interpret it that way is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he has just gotten through telling women how they are to pray in church. And I go, wait a second, which is it, Paul? You want to tell them how to pray or you want to tell them to be quiet? So at least immediately we've got to deal with this question. What's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And you may or may not remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is about telling the women that they should pray with their heads covered, with a veil. Now, I don't see a veil in here. And moreover, he grounds, this is important, he grounds veil wearing in creation but I don't see a veil in here. Why is that? Well, because we've both in our tradition and in this particular congregation have said there's something particular going on here. One of the ways, and again, maybe, perhaps, a lot of commentators have said things that are going on in in Corinthians, but one of the things that they point to in Corinthians is that it appears that the women have heard Paul's Galatians 3, 26, and 27, and 28 sermon. They know you've been baptized into Christ. There's no longer Jew nor Creek, male or female, bond or free. We're all one in Christ. And they're like, yes, Paul, thank you very much. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they go to church, and they say, I am tired of wearing this veil. I am tired of the wind men telling me to wear my veil. Now, I'm overstating it for the sake of a little bit of dramatization. But you see the point? The idea is there, in, maybe what's going on in 1 Corinthians, in Corinthians is that they have heard his Galatian sermon and taken it so seriously that then they say, well, let's just be done with gender distinctions. And Paul is saying, hang on a second. The point is not to do away with gender distinctions. There's a place in this culture and in this place for the women to wear their veils and for the men to pray with their heads uncovered. Again, there's lots of possibilities about what's going on. Some commentators have suggested that the only people that go around town in Corinth, the only women that go around town in Corinth unveiled are prostitutes. Others suggest that having the head uncovered and the hair unbraided and the hair let down represents a sort of sexual availability. Um, one commentator says, maybe the way for you to get the notion of the sort of impact of what Paul is dealing with is, is if, if, if uh, you were to come to church on Sunday morning and, and all the w- women were in the assembly in bikinis and Randall was in his Speedo and <laughs> it's like, that's not going to work, right? <laughs> and Paul is saying, just come on. We're not throwing away gender distinctions. So, cover your head. Whatever the case, note that what he's done is he's given rules for how women should pray in the assembly. So, what's he doing in 1 Corinthians 14? Why is he telling them to be quiet? Well, a a number of options. Uh, It's clear throughout Corinthians that the Corinthian church is a mess, all sorts of disorder, and conflict is occurring. There's a disorder in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 
as well. Earlier in the book, early in the letter, he's addressing all sorts of false assertions, Paul quoting his opponents and addressing them. Um, he does this in chapter 6, chapter, tw- uh, chapter 7. Um, but what, what we know for sure then is that there's all sorts of a mess, right? And what many have suggested seems to be happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that there are people talking out of turn, women in particular talking out of turn, being disorderly and not thinking about the rightful ordering of the assembly. One famous um, Middle Eastern ex, uh, uh, brilliant man who went, went and uh, actually lived in the Middle East for I don't know how many decades, long time, just so he could see what's still going on in the Middle East that we could still learn from the time of Christ. And he's written these beautiful books about the parables, for example, Ken Bailey is his name. And he, and he suggests, you know, that one, one implausible reality is that in that context, it would have been presumed that the, there's, there's two different parts of the house in the house church. There's the women's part of the house and there's the men's part of the house. And if you've got the men sitting in here and the man, if a man's standing up there teaching them and he's talking over in, in, in this room and the women are over in this room trying to hear what's going on, what are you going to do? You're going to get bored? You're going to get tired of listening? You're going to get tired? And you know, one, one might finally shout through the door and say, well, what about such and so? And, it gets in the, and then they just get tired and they start grumbling and talking and talking. And it's like he's saying, just quiet. In all the churches, we have to have order. So he concludes that chapter and says, let all things be done decently and in order, right? So there's lots that could be said about this. But what I'm pointing you to here is this approach that's saying, read it not as saying, don't read it. Let me, let me back up. Don't try to read the verse or verse says apart from taking seriously historical context and setting and the larger narrative. Paul is saying, be quiet. Well, what sense does that make given the whole narrative of Scripture? Well, this seems to be some plausible ways to think about what he's doing. Quickly, I also note that from an old Autocrete church history perspective, this is not a new interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14. We decided upon this interpretation, something like this interpretation, many, many years ago because we stopped the uh, silencing of women in our assemblies quite a number of many years ago. Quickly, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger argument. Also, the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with hair braided, gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Under the regulative principle, this is man is the authority, woman is submissive and silent, and at worst, in some ways, stays home and makes babies. But Again, ask that question. What about the rest of the context? Pay attention to the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. We won't talk about it now. But let's move to then to a kind of narrative reading. What do you do with this? Well, in uh, some of the presumed context of 1 Timothy is conflict and false teaching. Someone is teaching some false things. Second is the potential background of Ephesus. Ephesus had a famous pagan cult that was led by women priests. It was a classic matriarchal religious system there in Ephesus. 
And third, there seemed to be, apparently in the context, some who were being deceived with false teaching. So, given those presumptions, let's re-examine the text quickly, and I'll pick back up with this next week, but let me just give you some indications of where this might, what it might look like. If you re-examine this text, running it through the lens of what I just discussed, you can think about what, what he's saying is something like this. We need to stop the stereotypical men and women stuff. You men, stop your arguing, stop your bickering, stop your chest thumping. Ladies, don't get caught up in ostentatiousness, in wearing a bunch of fancy clothes, worrying too much about your hairdo. Your calling is to do good works. Good works being a phrase for doing the work that serves the common good of a community, caring for the poor, caring for the arts, caring for the good of a community. Then, note, if you read this, uh, this passage, uh, let a woman learn. What if the emphasis through here is let the women learn? That immediately gives us a different note, doesn't it? Not let a woman learn in silence with full submission or let the women learn. And then in silence with submission. Now, let's think about that in silence just a second. Um, this is not the same word for silence that you get in 1 Corinthians 14. It's a word that can just be translated in peace and quiet, in quietness, a sort of rest of inner peace, of peace and harmony among citizens. Uh, uh, as another, another sort of reference puts it, of an undisturbed life. It's saying, let the women learn and leave them undisturbed. And then with full submission. Now, if you read that through a patriarchal set of assumptions, what do you assume the submission, the submission is to? So, y'all, tell me. Right. Why do we assume that? It just got through saying, profess reverence for God. And look how we put man in the place of God, just like that. In full submission to God. Adam and Eve. Well, again, if you have patriarchal assumptions and you read that story about Adam and Eve, you can say, well, you know, you can't trust a woman. Eve was the one who was deceived. She's the mother of all women, easily duped. Instead, what if you say, wait a second. Adam knew straight ahead what the command was, and Adam just disobeyed. What he's saying about Eve is that she was deceived. Her, her guilt is not as great as Adam's. Adam knew. She got deceived, which is why he's saying, let women learn. They need to have just the same responsibility as men do to know the will of God. Let them learn. Don't impose a quashing of their curiosity, a quashing of their learning, a quashing of their gifts. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. At its ugliest, read through upon a patriarchal set of assumptions, it's, you know, the sort of bigoted, let the woman be barefoot and pregnant, right? Well, you could read it that way if that's the set of assumptions you bring to it. But Paul sees, we could, we could say that, that Paul sees childbearing 
That's precisely one of the good gifts that God has given, one of the good works that God has given to women. The great gift of bearing children and bringing children into the world, which is one of the most beautiful of gifts, right? So again, it matters immensely to what degree you bring your own patriarchal cultural assumptions to this and in what degree you let the larger narrative of Scripture determine the questions that you let arise from the text. Last one here, I'll, I'll note real quickly and I've got to quit. Um, I, do not, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. That word authentane uh, is, a, is, a, is a word that is uh, probably best translated domineering authority. And what, what, he, what he's saying is, again, if you presume the background of Ephesus, or what's happened in Ephesus is a matriarchal sort of control of the religious cult. And what Paul is saying is, the point is not we're going to replace patriarchy with matriarchy. He's saying, I don't permit a woman to have domineering authority over a man. That's not the point. But uh, submission. Now, the whole narrative of the gospel is a reconfiguring of authority in servanthood and mutual submission. Lots more to talk about. We'll try to cover a lot more next week. Thank you so much. Uh, if you've got questions, JB will pick those up. And uh, John's got those as well. Pick those up and uh, please get those to us. And we'll resume next week. Thanks so much.